Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Greetings and welcome again to the New Books Network, the African-American Studies channel. I'm your host, James Stansel, and today I'm going to be interviewing the author of Prison Power, How Prison Influenced the Movement for Black Liberation. Lisa M. Corrigan is the author. The book is published by University Press of Mississippi. I think you're really going to enjoy this interview. This is one of the uh, first books to really talk about this topic, and she won some awards, which she's going to share with you. So listen up and enjoy. Hello and welcome again to the New Books Network, the African-American Studies channel. I'm your host, James Stansel, and I have the great pleasure of being here today with the author of Prison Power, How Prison Influenced the Movement for Black Liberation. Her name is Lisa M. Corrigan, and she is an associate professor of communication, director of the Gender Studies Program, and affiliate faculty in African and African-American Studies and in Latin American Studies at the University of Arkansas. Hello. How are you doing today, Lisa? Welcome to the program. I'm great, James. Thanks for having me today. It is my pleasure. And, you know, when I saw your book and I saw the you know the book cover and it's published by our friends at the University Press of Mississippi, I said, man, this is such a great topic. And I wanted to have you on so you can share this subject uh, with our audience. So absolutely. Thank you as well, Lisa Corrigan. So the first thing I want to do is um maybe give you the opportunity to talk about your background, Lisa, and what really got you interested in this topic. So I am a scholar who works in a lot of, across a lot of disciplines. So I have done work in English literature and political science and in art history, and of course, communication, which is my disciplinary home, and African African American studies and gender, uh, gender studies. And so Um, I was interested in in really thinking about the way in which prison has influenced American political life, um, especially for uh, black Americans in the middle of the 20th century. And I suppose it came out of the fact that as a young kid, I mean, I came up in the 80s and my parents worked. And as a white kid growing up in poor rural Ohio, I started listening to hip hop really, really young. And I sort of joke that Easy E was my midwife <laughs> because <laughs> I um, I listened to so much 
hip hop music as a little, little kid that it really restructured my ideas very young about power and about politics and about social violence and about gender and about race. And so when I got to graduate school, I was going to write about, um, blackness and political life in some way, but in the prison just seemed like it was the most important pressing space to excavate for me. And, you know, the book Prison Power here, I mean, this is a, a wonderful cover that you have on, on the book here. Can you maybe tell us about, you know, how you came up with this this cover and the, and the, the title and kind of the significance of it? Well, the book looks at the role of prison in shaping black political life, both as an, a strategic intervention into black politics as black activists intentionally went into prison, and then also as a way of destroying black activism as mass incarceration really developed steam during the middle of the 1960s. And so I thought prison power um, was a good way to describe the possibilities and the creative outlet that prison provided um, the black freedom movement. Uh, but also it influenced black liberation because it ultimately became a tool of destroying black communities um, and the movement activists themselves. And I love the cover. The, the artists at University Press in Mississippi did a wonderful job. I actually sort of uh, negotiated total artistic control over the cover in my contract because that was very important to me that I would have control over the title and the cover. And so I sent them the picture. And for those at home, it's a, a, a composite picture of the uh, Freedom Riders. And I like the prison pictures. It's all of their mug shots because it shows us a wide variety of activists engaged in um, creative strategies around imprisonment. Uh, both black and white, male and female, and some notable folks are here. You know, St Stokely Carmichael's in this picture, um, Schwerner and Goodman and Cheney, who of course were lynched in 1964 during the. They're in here. And so it's a composite picture of all of these civil rights activists who had gone into uh, the prisons and found their uh, the struggle led directly through the belly of American incarceration. Okay. Yeah, it's a, a beautiful cover, beautiful and a somewhat sad way, obviously, because these are people yeah. who are being, you know, incarcerated in, in, in prison, fighting for um, civil rights and human rights. But it's a very well done cover, as as you mentioned. So kudos to you. I like it because they they ghosted. You know, you you can see the some of the pictures are very clear, right. but then they ghosted some of the. Uh, live black liberation activists. And I like that because so many of the black liberation activists, especially who were mobilized in the South, you know, during 61, 62, 63, 64, 65, were disappeared. Mm. When they were looking for Schwerner, Goodman and Cheney in 64, uh, during Mississippi Freedom Summer, they were dredging all of these bodies of water and, and they were just finding all of these you know, black Americans that had gone missing, that had just been kidnapped and disappeared and tortured. And and um, the 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 kids who were down there doing voter registration in Mississippi said it was just so heartbreaking. Not only were their friends missing, but then they were finding just dozens and dozens and dozens of missing black folk that had just been stolen and terrorized. And so it was really important to me uh, that the cover get that story right and visually depict the people who put their bodies on the line, went into the prisons, were tortured there and assaulted there and came out to, to do it again. Right. Can you tell us a little bit about your process 
uh, Lisa, you, you talked a little bit about the cover there and, and, and the photos, but how long did it take for you to complete this book project and what methods, research methods did you use? Ten. It took me ten years to write it. Mm-hmm. So uh, mostly because a lot of it was archival research. And so I was very fortunate to get to spend some time at the Freedom Archives out in San Francisco. And they have a lot of um, Pacifica Radio's archives and a lot of ephemera from the Black Freedom Struggle. And so Claude Marx was wonderful there. And I was able to go in and work for a few days in their archives. And I did some work with the Lyndon Johnson Presidential Library and some of the oral histories that a lot of the members of the Justice Department had recorded there after the Johnson administration. Um, And then I was able to work with quite a few of the uh, publishers. So, for example, one of the chapters is on Mumia Abu-Jamal. And while I was at the Freedom Archives, I was just working on a computer. And Noel Hanrahan, who has produced most of his radio interviews from prison, I was using her computer. And she just happened to come in and she gave me access to all, like all of these radio interviews and, and you know, things that Mumia had been writing from prison for, you know, decades. And so there were there were some fortuitous moments like that. Um, where I had access to activists themselves or people that were very, very close to them that helped get their uh, work out of prison. Um, the texts that I use, uh, I'm looking mostly at their autobiographies for the case study chapters. And so I like autobiographies about black freedom activists because they circulate so widely and they're so accessible to huge audiences, right? Different audiences. White people read them and eavesdrop. Black folks read them, right? And they're, they're massly, they're, they're productive and they're available to a wide variety of audiences. So um, I... I, I really like thinking about autobiography as a way that ideas travel and the way that people construct memory. Um, one major difference is that the original draft of this years and years ago, the last chapter was about hip hop. And it was about the way in which Mumia Abu-Jamal, Rap Brown, now Jamil Elamine, and Asada Shakur circulate in hip hop culture as um, living martyrs, as, as the way that they carry uh, messages of resistance and ideas about political prisoners into new generations to circulate. And I took that out for the book. So I've published pieces of that elsewhere in journal articles, especially about Asada and hip hop. But um, the new conclusion is all about the convergence of the war on black America and the war on terror in thinking about the way in which the discourse on the war on terror mobilized Asada Shakur, Mumia Abu-Jamal and Rap Brown to help drum up support um, to both reinvigorate mass incarceration against black Americans and to justify, you know, what what now is ultimately like a Muslim ban. Right. To, to reinvigorate this anti-Muslim sentiment. And so I'm really um, interested in how anti-black and anti-Muslim sentiments converge during the Bush administration as a way of justifying a really um, extremist white supremacist Department of Justice. And Lisa, you know, at this time, if you don't mind, can you maybe highlight or or talk about some of the things that if people were to purchase or uh, buy your book or or look into it that they could uh, expect to see? The book really argues that prison became the central space for the transformation from the Southern civil rights movement to black power as it became more Northern and more urban. And so I'm interested in how autobiographical writings, essays and letters from prison 
um, how they were produced, even starting with the sit-in movement, and how they really helped create um, a space within movement activism to understand the productivity of prison, what it meant to go into prison, what it meant for kids to go into prison, what it meant for middle-class black folks to go into prison, what it meant to go into prison with white northern college kids, and how that could help change the strategies and tactics of the movement as it agitated for social equality and voting rights. And, And then I'm interested in the other side, too, and about how the federal government and the states used the prison to help ultimately undermine black freedom activism. And so I look at those writings to think about um, what I call the black power vernacular, which is the language of black power. Because in 1966, when black power is born as a slogan, as a political slogan, Stokely starts talking about it. Stokely Carmichael starts talking about it as a different kind of orientation of blackness to whiteness. And it ultimately, by the end of 66, pushes almost all of the white liberals out of the major civil rights organizations and radicalizes them as as a way of understanding black activists' relationship to both blackness and whiteness. And it's prison that does that. So uh, I, the book talks a lot about how those autobiographical black power writings created different language that black folks use to describe their relationship to the state, to each other, to white liberals, to the president, to their communities, and and I think really made important contributions in elevating, um, you know, black street talk as a way of intervening into white politics. And so the black power activists, they, by, by 1966, had lost total confidence in Lyndon Johnson. They had never trusted the Department of Justice because of its collusion with the FBI. And they felt that they had to have a different way of understanding what kinds of work they could be doing in their own communities to wrestle power back from the white state, which persistently undermined, you know, the equality that the nation said that it wanted to provide for all of its people. So I talk a lot about that kind of language, about black power language and the kinds of interventions that black power activists made in thinking about themselves as revolutionaries, as radicals, as um, guerrilla warfare, thinking about guerrilla warfare as uh, an invention that they think about. They think a lot about third world revolution and what they can learn from third world revolutions, especially the Cuban revolution, but also the examples in Vietnam and Africa. They're thinking a lot about what it means to be an internal colony what it means for black people to live and exist inside of a colonial superpower as a minoritarian group. They are borrowing third world liberation language to think about and interrogate their relationship to whiteness. Because the white liberals, they think that they're helping, right? They, they, and part of some of them have this missionary idea that they're helping black folks. And some of them have this policy idea that if you just pass the right laws or you have the right court decision uh, emerge or, right, the Supreme Court rules on a thing, that you will get equality. And Malcolm X's point is, I think, right on. Like, you know, 10 years after Brown versus Board of Education, only 9% of schools in the entire United States were desegregated. Segregated. And so it's really hard, you know, to take those kinds of legal decisions 
um, as the end-all be-all, as the thing that's going to somehow redistribute rights so that black and brown people are equal. And so really the book talks at length about the kinds of language that the prison inspired for black power activists so that they could describe this extremely complicated process of domination that was happening in uh, in the United States. And like I said, thank you so so much for having an interest in this topic and you know, really, really doing the research here, because I think it's really going to be interesting for people who pick up this book and listen to this podcast and really kind of get a feel, you know, because I know for me, I felt like I was back during those times. Well, they're telling their own stories, though. You know, it's not just me. I'm, I'm just, you know, sort of matching up the stories with the readers so that people can read for themselves what was happening in the activist's own words, especially as a white scholar who does race work. You know, I think that it's an ethical imperative to think very, very long and hard about my role um, and the kinds of radical space that white people, I think, have an obligation to occupy to help amplify the voices of black activists. And so insofar as I can do that inside and outside of the university, I'm like there for it, man. <laughs> I'm, I'm like the radical white woman who's like shouting about black power everywhere. And I, I feel like and, I, you know, but there have always been white women who have, have stood side by side, you know, especially in the black freedom struggle in the United States. Somebody else should write that book. I'm not going to write that book, but somebody needs to write that book and think about, you know, the role of of white activists and white intellectuals and helping to amplify black voices. And so that's what I think that I'm doing, you know, with prison power. All right. Lisa M. Corgan, you don't want to write that book. No, I've got another, I've got a book that that's due to the publisher this winter. It's tentatively titled black feelings. Uh-huh. And it looks at the ways in which feelings both structure and are structured by politics. And so it starts with the Kennedy administration cultivating this notion of hope as a new political orientation after the hyperconsumption and uh, political stagnation and conformism of the 1950s and the post-war years. And then it goes all the way through Huey Newton's book, Revolutionary Suicide, in, in thinking about how black activists exposed white feelings as bankrupt and as disingenuous and as problematic for black people and invented new ways of orienting black consciousness towards different political feelings. And they then created different political strategies because they felt differently, (laughs) you know. So black feelings is the next project. And it, I think, dovetails really nicely with prison power and thinking through how the black power vernacular really produced a different kind of cultural sentiment among black people, especially, you know, intellectual, radical black people, and especially after the assassination of Martin Luther King. I mean, the nation really changes. Black people feel very differently about white folks after 68, and black folks feel very different about nonviolence after 1968. And so as feelings change, so do politics. And I'm really interested in how that goes to go together, feelings and politics. So but I'm not writing the book about white women in the civil rights movement. <laughs> not, not yet. Maybe... We we can yeah. talk about it further, yeah, yeah. and and I and I can convince <laughs> you later, Lisa M. Corrigan, to write that book because I would love to have you back on uh, to discuss that book as as well. And we definitely want you on when uh, Black Feelings comes out, right? So can I get a commitment from you right yeah, now? Yeah, have gonna... to do it. A hundred percent, I'm in. I'm all in. You're all in. Okay, so everyone, New Books Network. We have we have a commitment from Lisa M. Corrigan for her next book, uh, Black <laughs> Feelings. So we're, we're going to get her to put that on uh, ink. All right. Ink to paper. You haven't mentioned any of that Razorback stuff yet, right? 
You want to give a shout out to any, any of your University of Arkansas folk in, in that regard? I mean, I have been very, very lucky at the University of Arkansas that the Fulbright College of Arts and Sciences has supported this work. I'm really proud of Prison Power because it just won the, the National Communication Association's 2017 Diamond Anniversary Book Award, which is the, the major book prize in the field of communication. And I'm excited that the university has supported me writing this book because I think it's very timely. I think this political moment that we are living in calls for us to do deep and sustained, thoughtful investigations into the structures of domination and violence that um, permeate American political life, especially for our most precarious citizens, you know, be they black Americans or be they Puerto Ricans or be they, you know, immigrants. And so um, I've been I've just been tremendously lucky that the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of Arkansas has has been so supportive as I've written this book and has been um, so generous. Um, with their financial support uh, of I've, I've been able to get a little bit of leave time from away from teaching to write it and some internal grant money to facilitate some of the research. And um, and it's the very first book about race that has ever won the Diamond Anniversary Book Award. And so I hope that it will not be the last. Outstanding, Lisa M. Corrigan. And that says something about you as a writer and scholar. As, as well as your, your topic here. Well, let's be honest about it. I'm a white woman and I'm being rewarded for writing about radical blackness. And that's also problematic. You know, I'm proud of the book. I did solid work. I'm glad it won the prize. But also there's a responsibility to talk about, you know, how often black folks write about their own stories and they don't get any recognition at all. So, you know, I'm proud of the award and I need, you know, obviously I have to talk about it, but it's a melancholy thing for me mm. because... You know, I am being socially promoted writing about something that black folks have been saying for the entirety of their history in the United States. And so, um, you know, I just don't want that to not not be part of the conversation, too. You know, I'm happy to amplify the voices to connect the book with audiences for people who need to hear it and who need to and who maybe need to hear it from white people. But at the same time, you know, the fact that it's the first book about race to win the award speaks to a much larger erasure of black voices in the culture. And that seriously has to be rectified, you know, not just in academic publishing, but in every aspect and facet of American life. Well said. Lisa M. Corrigan, you just made it a part of the conversation right here on the New Books Network. Yes, I did. It yes. has to be said, man. It's got to be said. Yeah. Black folks do not get rewarded for talking about black power. They do not. That in American life, they have been killed. They've been assassinated. They've been disappeared, you know, or they've been forced into exile. So for me to get rewarded writing about it, you know, is a, it's a mixed sort of thing. And, and we have to acknowledge both sides of that, the the complicity that white people have in structures of white supremacy and, you know, the important work that has to be done by white people to talk to white people about you know, black and brown lives. And so for me, I do talks all around the world about black power to a lot of white people. And and my, my students in class, I was talking about Malcolm X the other day, and they're like, do you think that this would be different if you were a black person? And I'm like, yeah, you would think that I had an agenda, 
you would write me off. You would immediately click into a bunch of cognitive bias and anti-black sentiment that you don't even know is in your brain. And you would dismiss the things that I was saying because I was black. But the fact that I'm white and talking about these figures who are extremely important in structuring American political life and I'm white, you hear those things differently. It has a different kind of credibility. So, um, yeah, I'm, especially because University of Arkansas is a predominantly white institution. You know, I'm with white people all the time talking about radical black stuff. And so I feel like, you know, more white people need to take up more space among their own people and civilize white folks so they stop killing black folks in the streets. I feel very strongly about it, James. Lisa M. Corgan, you just put it out there. <laughs> it's got to be done. I mean, that's the only way stuff is going to change. Black people know that they're humans. White folks can't seem to get it through their heads. So if it takes me writing all the books from now until I die, that's what I'll be doing. All right. And the more you write them, the more we're going to have you on New Books Network, the <laughs> African-American Studies channel. I'm happy to do it, man. You know, I just appreciate what you're doing over here and getting connecting these books to people who are interested in reading and thinking about black life. And, you know, this is a really precarious moment in human history generally, but in American history particularly. And the prison especially is just a towering space for just the prosecution of black life. And, you know, I, I was right when I was writing the book, these series of stories came out, I think, in the Atlantic about Chicago and about all of these black ops secret prisons all across Illinois that black folks have just been getting disappeared into for years. Like you get picked up by the police and nobody knows where you went or who, where you where the intake was or no forms. I mean, literally, they are just like Abu Graves, these like black ops sites in Illinois that black folks get disappeared into as these secret prisons. And that stuff happens all around the globe all the time. And it's mostly black and brown folks. And in America, even though the rates of incarceration are, are creeping up, for black women, it's still mostly black men disproportionately that are being incarcerated. <clears throat> and that just has to stop. I mean, it just has to stop. So I'm happy to see films and miniseries take up the issue of mass incarceration. And I'm happy to see that people are finally starting to think about the role that prison plays in the destruction of black communities. But it's not just prison. You know, one of the things that the activists in the book talk a lot about is that <laughs> their understanding of the prison really helped them understand why uh, slavery has never really left. You know, we still have farm <laughs> We still have penitentiaries across the American South that still operate as plantations. They they fund fund they make money for the state. <clears throat> and that in addition to corporate prisons which have no transparency and no accountability, you know, function as ways of disappearing black folks and destroying black community and prohibit black communities from building generational wealth and destroy families and create the school to prison pipeline. In Arkansas, for example, we we build prisons based on the literacy rates of third grade black boys. Now you tell me, I mean, that is racist. That's just, that, there's no way to describe that. That's just fundamentally racist. How can we remove these black men from the productive economy and force them to be, right, disappeared as slaves inside of the American prison system? And it's only going to get worse before it gets better unless people start thinking really about how, critically about how, you know, prison works to disrupt black communities. So I, I'm... Even though it took me 10 years to write this book, and I'm so proud of it, this is in some ways an important moment for it to appear and circulate, you know? 
And on, on that note, Lisa, I don't want to hold you all day. Thank you so, for taking some time for us on the network here while you're at the University of Arkansas. But I wanted to give you an opportunity before we close out to talk about some of the other additional things, places where people could find you and your work. I know you mentioned your upcoming book, Black Feelings, right? Uh, yes. So some other places we could find your work or you and you. I know we talked offline about your podcast as well, if you don't mind sharing. Sure. So um, with my co-host, Laura Wiederhoft, I have a podcast called uh, Lean Back, Critical Feminist Conversations. And so we're very interested in talking about the relationship among race, gender, sex, class um, and power and the way that <laughs> the way that women and men uh, and trans folks and non-gender binary conforming individuals think about uh, work and labor and family and attraction. And uh, so the podcast has three episodes out now. We're in about 60 countries across uh, the world. And um, Pace Magazine just named us the number one podcast in Arkansas. So that's Lean Back. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Lean Back Podcast. You can live stream on SoundCloud or iTunes or Google Play. Any of your podcast uh, platforms will have Lean Back. And then, um, you know, I also do politics. So I work um, as a as an unpaid consultant and trainer for caucuses, legislators, um, county party organs um, and activists. And I do political trainings about building grassroots political power and about how state legislatures and the federal government work. So I am very pleased to have contributed to something called the Indivisible Guide. And so if you're online at all, you, you probably have seen um, Indivisible Activists. There are about 4,000 chapters across the country now that have, that have grown since the election, since the presidential election. And they have been the ones disrupting town halls and holding public forums over things like the Affordable Care Act. And so <clears throat> I also travel a lot and do a tremendous amount of political consulting for all kinds of organizations around um, progressive issues and around you know, political history, especially in the American South. Um, and you can find me on Twitter at Dr. Lisa Corrigan, um, where I'm generally talking about um, black politics and grassroots activism and gender work. Um, so those would be great places to find me yeah, on the Internet. That sounds pretty good. And so hopefully folk will um, get in contact with you there if they have questions about some of the things that you mentioned on the podcast today or they want to talk with you about prison power or, or black feelings or some of the, the future projects that, that you have. As you all can hear there, Lisa M. Corrigan is pretty busy. <laughs> <laughs> that is the truth of it. That not, is the truth. We not, all need to be busy, though. This is our future, you know. So not just with uh, her, her academics at University of Arkansas, but um, outside of the classroom there as well. So we're definitely grateful that she took some time uh, to talk with us on the New Books Network. So thank you so much, Lisa M. Corrigan, uh, for talking with us today about your book. So you can click through on our blog page on New Books Network and you can purchase the book. And of course, you can listen to this podcast and listen to Lisa's podcast as well that, that, that she mentioned. So on that note, we're going to close it out here again. Thank you so much, Lisa M. Corrigan, for spending some time with us on the African-American Studies channel of the New Books Network. And if you could just say goodbye to our audience for us. Thanks so much, James. Thanks for having me here. I'm happy to come back anytime, man. 
Absolutely. Hey, we're going to get you for black feelings. Don't don't worry. And we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk a little more offline about that. Uh, white women and civil rights. That's a real deal, man. That's a real deal. We need to get you working on that one, too. So thank Thanks you. so much. Oh, it's, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for spending some time and, sh- and sharing your deep thoughts with our audience. And we're going to close there. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. This is your host, James Stansel, the New Books Network, the African-American Studies Channel. Peace and love. Thank you so much, Lisa M. Corrigan, the author of Prison Power, How Prison Influenced the Movement for Black Liberation, published by the University Press of Mississippi, for taking some time with us today. And as you heard, she's pretty busy doing things outside of her university teaching. So thank you so much for spending some time with us on the network. Definitely check out her podcast and some of the other things that she mentioned. I think you're going to enjoy it if you enjoyed hearing her on our network today. So thank you so much for listening, everyone. See you soon.